Well, John chapter 17, John chapter 17, we're looking at the high priestly prayer that we call it. It's where he is praying on behalf of both his own disciples, the 11 that are with him, and he's praying on behalf of all those who would become his disciples. One of the things that's true of Scripture is that even today, even right now, our Lord Jesus Christ is interceding for you. He is coming before you, and he is praying on your behalf. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for you. As we speak this day, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, and according to Romans 8.34, is interceding for us, the Scripture says. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews 7.25 that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he lives to make intercession for them. And so again, he's interceding for you. He's interceding for us. And so as we draw here to John chapter 17, Jesus in the outline is praying for himself in 1 through 5, namely that he would glorify God even in his coming death. Then secondly, he prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then thirdly, he prays for all believers in 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 20 through 26. So we find ourselves this morning in that second section that he's praying for his disciples. In fact, look at 17.1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He's praying. Look down in verse 9. It says, I am praying for them. Now, the question might arise, what is he praying for his disciples regarding? And what we have in this middle section here is three great truths that provide encouragement, that provide comfort both to these 11 disciples and to all future disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he prays for them, he gives them three great encouragements. Now, you'll glance down in your Bible in chapter 17, verse 20. He said, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you. And so uh, we've said along a couple weeks ago that uh, he's prayed for you. The Lord Jesus Christ has prayed for you. So he prays for these disciples. He prays for us as well. Now, he's praying, as I mentioned there, to be an encouragement to you. He's praying to be a comfort to you. It's a comfort to these 11, but it's a comfort to us. Now, we'll look at two great truths that he prays for today and then the one final truth next week. But first, Christ prays for the people that the Father gave him out of the world. He prays for the people that God gave him out of the world. Namely, he's praying for his elect. Namely, he's praying 
for those chosen of God. He's praying for those in this main head or this subpoint here, for those whom the Father gave him. Now, this is repeated in the scripture. Look down in John 17, too. Since you have given him, he's praying to the Father, that you have given him, Christ, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He's praying for those whom the Father gave to the Son. Look at chapter 17 in verse 6. He says there that I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In other words, believers belong to the Father, they belong to God, and we are the Father's gift, if you will, to the Son. The Father gave to the Son a love gift, those whom he called out. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them, Jesus said. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. In fact, glance down at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. So Jesus is praying to the Father that, Father, they are yours by choice. Father, they belong to you. You have given them to me. I mean, the the truth here of the scripture is that we are the Father's possession, that we are a gift to the Son. What does the Son give? The Son gives something back. You say, what does he give? Look at verse 2. It says, you have given him authority over all the flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given me. So the Father gives us to the Son The Son, if you will, gives us eternal life. In fact, look else what he gives in verse 6. He manifests your name to the people that you gave me out of the world. So this is an incredible work of the triune God. God the Father gives to God the Son a redeemed people from before the foundation of the world. God the Son gives eternal life to those whom the Father gave. And what Jesus distinctly did in his ministry is he gives a revelation of God the Father to the one whom he had given to the Son. It's amazing. In fact, in verse 8, if you look there, Jesus said, I have given them the words you gave me. So not only does he reveal the Father, but he reveals to us the very words that come from God the Father. But as we draw here this morning... He's leaving the world, as we know, in this context. And he is praying for the disciples. In fact, glance back in 1628, maybe it's there on the same page. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So he's leaving us in this world And you'll know whenever you see that phrase world, as we've studied both in 1 John, as we've studied in the Gospel of John, he is leaving us in this fallen, corrupt world, a world as we know it that's in rebellion to God, 
a world as we know it that is dominated by Satan, that is controlled by his demons. And the thought would come out of this text to you this morning is that we need divine protection. Imagine these disciples huddled about as they're making their way to Gethsemane, and he keeps telling them that he's leaving. And as he's leaving, he's the one who's protected them. And now in this prayer, he is entrusting them to the disciples. And so he prays for the disciples, and he prays for us. So first, he prays for the people that the Father gave him out of the world. But secondly here, he prays specifically for the believer's protection in the world. He's praying for our protection in the world. Now, it goes without notice here that while he was with them, he was their protector in the world. And so he's leaving them, and the question would arise, who will protect them? And here's the prayer. He asked the Father to guard them, you, them, with his protection. He gives them, he gives us a remedy for fear as we live in this world, and the remedy is God, and the remedy is the name of God, as we saw last week, and the remedy in his name is the power of God, and so he communicates to the disciples Don't lose heart. In fact, look at the protection here offered in this prayer. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Okay, he's praying, right? I am coming to you, Holy Father. Here's the request. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Keep them, that's his prayer, in your name. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So right there three times, he says, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name, and I have guarded them. That idea there of guarded them um, is to protect from outside threats. And that could be multiple outside threats. That could be the evil one who lives in this world and controls this world. Paul says it is the God of this world. It could be the trial that you undergo. The, the suffering, sometimes physically, that you undergo. So he's praying to his father, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name. I guarded them. I protected them from outside threats. In fact, that word's used in Acts 28 to speak of the soldiers who were guarding Paul. And here Jesus prays, I've guarded them. And now, Father, I want you to guard them. In fact, look down at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, fourth word, from the evil one. That's his prayer. He's placing, if you will, our salvation into the Father's hand. Uh, Calvin, the great Bible expositor, said Christ was given 
by the Father to be their guardian for a time. And now that he has discharged the duties of that office, he, speaking of Jesus, gives them back into the Father's care that they may enjoy his protection and may be held up by his power. So, well said by Calvin. He, Jesus is praying to the Father for the disciples, for you, to, that have been given to him to be kept. The thought is to be kept to the end is the thought. To be kept, if you will, and preserved. Here, theologically speaking, it's addressing the issue of the eternal security of the believer. In other words, he's praying that you would be kept, kept ultimately, kept preserved, if you will, to the end. In theological perspectives, we call this the perseverance of the saints. That's what he's addressing. Father, I'm praying that as I've guarded them, that you would guard them, that you would keep them, that you would keep them from the evil one and persevere. Now, sometimes we use that word, the perseverance of the saints. It's a little bit of a misnomer in, in one sense because you're not the one persevering in that doctrine, but rather you are preserved and kept by God the Father. So when it addresses that, the perseverance of the saints, it's not talking about you persevering. It's talking about that God has a hold of you and he will keep that which he began. And so here Jesus said, while I was guarding them, look at the statement, where is it in verse 12? He says, not one of them has been, what, lost. In other words, when he departs from this world, we will suffer no loss. Why? Because the Father, even as I speak, is protecting you until glory. I'll say more on that. But look at verse 11, though, now. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, only place he mentions this, Holy Father... I'm coming to you, and I think he addresses them as Holy Father because of the contrast with the fallen world. But I'm, a, I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. And here's his request, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, he's praying for the believer's unity. What does that mean, that we may be one? Well, let me just say that he's not requesting that one day all denominations may become one massive denomination. That's not his prayer, because when he prayed this high priestly prayer, there were no denominations. We understand that. So he's not praying for that. Rather, he's praying that the disciples would constantly be one in their stand against the world, that they may remain united in love, that they may remain united in truth, just as also the Father and Son are constantly one. You know, unity doesn't come at the expense of truth. Come back next week. Unity is forged on the anvil of truth. Sanctify them by the truth. He's speaking here not of a visible unity, but an internal, invisible unity that all believers share. 
I've had people ask me over the years, how come there's so much confusion in the body of Christ? And I tend to not think that's right. I tend to think there's great unity where Christ is held up. I think there's great unity where Christ is preached. I think there's great unity with believers who have been brought into a living, vital relationship with Christ who are committed to the truth that he proclaimed. And so he's praying that there would be oneness. And he's praying here, though, I think more than that, that we are to be one in this local church just as the Trinity is one. They have a common purpose. They have mutual love. There's a mutual mission together. You say, what's the mission? Well, it's next week. But look at verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There's the mission in Dom and Jess. Obviously, you're part of that mission as we commission you to be sent out because that's really part of his prayers. Father, you've sent me. I'm now sending them. So, Grace Church, you are doing a, a noble work in sending this dear family. I should probably say it's just hard for me. I feel like Shay a little bit. I don't even want to look at him. Do I have to look at him right now? Um, we don't want Dom to go. We don't want Jess to go. But at the same time, Shay said it in Matthew 28, there's a great commission. And I just want you to know that it's built off the backbone of our local church to be able to send them. And so the strength doesn't come always out of what we do here in worship. I drove into the seminary class that we offer here, training Dom and a, a, some men in that adventure so that he could be skilled and others can be skilled. But I drove into the parking lot last week on Thursday, and I had to drive around the parking lot to get a spot because the women's Bible study was stuffed. We're so thankful. That's Thursday morning. There's another one that goes on Thursday night. And then as I came down from the seminary class, there was a whole crew there watching over the precious children. And just at the women's Bible study, they had 90 children on Thursday. So God's doing a work in the midst of our women. He's doing a work in the midst of our men at the men's equippers. We've got a retreat coming up, not this weekend, but the next week. And we're so thankful for that. We're thankful for what he's doing at Girls of Grace. And I call them the Ranger Boys. And uh, Shay over here, you, you know, just, uh, we don't quite know what the Lord's doing, do we? Shay, I mean, Shay opened up Resolved a couple weeks ago and had 70 high school students there. Then Reality, the junior high meets on Monday, and there were 40 students there. Then this week, they opened small groups on Wednesday night for the high school men and for the high school women, and a tremendous turnout, wasn't there? So, so listen, I just want you to know that we're on mission here. And he's praying that they would be one, even as the Trinity is one, and the Trinity is one in nature, in heart, in purpose, in love, and in mission. And really, that's what we are today. So as hard as it is to send the Avalas here in the weeks before us, we rejoice that God is accomplishing his purpose, both there and in Uganda. We just sent John Paul. In fact, just so you can pray for Dom, I, I'm, I'm really off my notes here. Dom had talked with John Paul before John Paul left. And we, this was in discussion. We weren't sure what the Lord would do. But John Paul said, Dom, 
you're going to the harder place. Don was like, what do you mean, John Paul? He said, well, I'm going to a local church where Shannon Hurley has been there for 15 years and amongst a number of staff people with a Christian school at it, and they're going to Seaside. And it is not easy. And so we come together and want to pray with them. And I think they feel that burden, and I want us to feel that burden to be in prayer for them, and we'll tell you more. But Jesus says, listen, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. But this unity is not at the expense of truth, beloved. It is, verse 17, grounded in the truth, and that's what we're going to do. I see a lot of new people every week here. And I think you know our heart by this time. We're going to be a church committed to the truth. We don't want to compromise. We don't want to broker, you know, in hesitation with the truth. We want to uphold truth as the church started 12 years ago in September. And 12 years ago now, we're committed to that truth that has been once and for all delivered to the saints. And so Jesus says, while I was with them, verse 12, I guarded them in your name. I kept them, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. You say, what do you mean when he says that? Look there in verse 12, that not one of them has been lost. In other words, what Jesus is praying is how inconsistent. He's not saying that, but how inconsistent for one to perish now. As if God's power was extinguished in his death. How utterly inconsistent. If the Father gave him to the Son before the foundation of the world... For one of them to be lost would be the thought. That they would be lost and extinguished in his death. How absurd that they would be lost. How could the father reject the very ones that he himself gave to the son? And so Jesus prays, what you gave me to do, I have fully accomplished as he looks towards the cross and not one of them is lost. What you gave me, I now entrust to you, for you, Father, to guard them, for you, Father, to keep them safe. I mean, obviously, beloved, you would reason with me that when Jesus was in the world, there was no need for the disciples to be safeguarded, was there? He was with them. But as he leaves the world, though ever present with us in prayer, they are to cast their eyes on the power of the Father. Now, not one of them was lost, but look at the text again in verse 12. Except, except the son of destruction. If you're holding an, a an ASB, except the son of perdition, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, Judas is the only exception to this prayer promise. Now, I want to be very clear here with you. He does not mean that I prayed that you'd keep them with the exception of Judas, of all those whom you have given me out of the world that I have guarded. No, that's not what he's saying. It's not as though everyone was kept except this one. What Jesus is saying, I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of destruction and far from God failing, his sovereignty is intact for this purpose, 
that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And we've looked at Judas before, and we'll look at him again in a little bit, but he is identified here as the son of destruction. It's a word used in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 to speak of the Antichrist. Excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2.3. In other words, Judas himself is a precursor to the Antichrist. Now you say, you might say, well, you mean he was sovereignly placed in the Scripture to betray the Son of God? Well, the text does say that it fulfilled the Scripture, but as I've said before in chapter 6, his fulfillment of Scripture does not negate the fact that Judas made his own decision and that he will be held accountable and judged for his evil act, according to Mark 14, 21. So our Lord says, I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost. None of them have ever perished except the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And so God's sovereignty overrides Judas and even his wicked intention. This was foreseen in the scripture. And you say, well, why is it there? Well, it's there for your encouragement. He doesn't lose any. And the one that was lost was never in his kingdom. He's a liar from the beginning, Judas. And it was to strengthen the disciples. I mean, you have to understand, it's this very night that they're sitting around the table. And Jesus said, one of you will betray him. The very night, it's still Thursday night, it's probably Friday morning, the day of his death, as he's walking through Jerusalem. And they all looked at each other and said, is it I? Surely it's, I mean, they, they didn't even know it was Judas. But as Judas departed, he revealed to them that Judas himself disobeyed the Lord's command and that that even was a fulfillment of the scripture. And so it was foreseen in Scripture, and I think it strengthened the disciples' faith that even that is under God's control. Remember in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us. If they had really been of us, they would have not left us, but they went out that it may be proven that they were not one of us. Judas was never one of those numbers. So you say, what's the point here? The point is, is that he's holding on to you. So he speaks. He prays this prayer in their hearing that it may calm their hearts. You say, calm them? How? Look at verse 13. He says, now, he says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And he's obviously speaking there of resurrection reality and the joy that would come to them. Look back at 1620. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament in 1620, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. He's praying for them that they may have joy in themselves. And he speaks this prayer for their hearing that it may calm their hearts. He is their joy. He is our joy. Now, how would they experience 
that joy? Well, here in the text, it's connected to the assurance, to the confidence that Jesus is praying for them. And so just as we close our time out and go to the Lord's table, let me give you three reasons why you can have joy, why you can have Christ's joy in the midst of a fallen world. He's doing this. He's praying this for our joy. And you say, well, how could that be joy? He left them and left us and ascended to the Father. Well, let me just remind you of three reasons. Number one, just as we look back, you this morning, beloved, you men, you women, you high school students, you are, number one, secure in Christ. You are secure, and what I mean by that is you are eternally secure in Christ, okay? In other words, you have been given to Christ as a love gift from the Father. We looked at that already. He said a number of times, five times, that you have given them to me. Listen, you can have joy this morning. It can wipe away all tears to recognize that when he was in his earthly ministry, he guarded them. As he goes to the cross, he gives them, if you will, to the Father who will guard them. And all that the Father, Jesus said in John 6.37, will, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And Jesus said in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never, what? Cast out. You cannot be cast out. You say, why? Because you're insecure in Christ. He's persevering for you. He's praying for you. I mean, I could turn this around and be a bad preacher and say, listen, this is how you are to pray for people in this world. This is how you are to pray for your children. This is how you pray for your grandchildren. You pray that they be protected from the world. There's truth to that. But, beloved, how much greater is it to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand interceding for you now? How much better is it to know that God the Father uh, is now, at this point, keeping you, securing you, guarding you from the evil one? In fact, look over, as you're just in 17, look at just the next chapter in verse 8, 18, 8. He says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Now, verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost, what? Not one. He can't lose you. You are secure in Christ. And it ought to just fill you with great joy. In fact, let me turn you to see it with your eyes. Look back to John chapter 10. Is this not the same expression there, that your security in Christ, that here as Jesus is praying in the same way that he and the Father are one, he says in 1027, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, 
and they will never, what? Perish. You can't perish. And no one, verse 28 says, will snatch them out of my hand. He keeps you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now look at verse 29. My father, back to the language, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the, what? The father's hand. You can't be snatched out of the hand of Christ. You can't be snatched out of the Father's hand. They are keeping you. They are guarding you. And they are guarding you all the way into glory. Do you remember Jude 24? You can write it down. To him, and you don't want to miss this statement, who is able, the, the idea there is, who is powerful to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. He's going to keep you, beloved, from stumbling and to present you one day blameless before him. You know, one day, there was a father walking down the street with his little two-year-old girl. And as he's walking him down the street, cars were flying by, just just zipping by, and the father's holding the hand of the girl, and you would agree with me that the child's safety is not on the grip of the child's grasp of her dad. It's rather on the father's grasp of his girl. Listen, your salvation is not conditioned on you. Your salvation is conditioned on the Father's grasp of you. He's holding on to you. He will never let you go. He will never lose what was given to him. That's the point. You're secure in Christ. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1.3 that it says there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy... That's his grace, right? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. Yours is not perishable. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. And here's the point. Kept in heaven for you who are by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. You are being guarded. You are being protected. You are secure in Christ this morning. Our confidence, don't miss this, lies in the power of God alone. Amen? In other words, if you think you can hold on to it, you'll lose all confidence. Come away this morning that the Father's got his hand on you and no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. But secondly, not only are you secure in Christ, you're secure, and I'm going to say this, in the midst of trials. You think, but what if this event, what if this scenario, what if this Circumstance, listen, you're secure in the midst of the trial because the Lord is ever with you. 
and you have a relentless adversary, he may be attacking some of you as I speak. Like this one in Revelation 12, 10, he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses you before God, how often? Day and night. You may have come in this morning. It doesn't affect your eternal security, but it affects the way you feel. And certainly we live in a hostile world, but here he's praying that our faith would not fail. And Jesus pledges to the Father his prayer of protection for us. You say, what do you mean he's praying right now? In Luke 22, Satan came after Peter. You remember this. And he desired in this context here, but Luke 22, to sift him like wheat. That you're, but he prayed. Satan's desire was to crush him. Satan's desire was to break him. But our Lord prayed in Luke 22, 32, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He's praying for you today. And some of you are at the reach and you don't know what will happen and we live in an evil world. Listen, you're secure in the midst of the trial because of an interceding high priest and you're secure in the midst of this trial because God the Father is not gonna lose his grip on you. And then he says to Peter, when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. You're secure in the midst of your trial. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Completion. Are you actually telling me or arguing with me that he can't preserve you? That he can't keep you? That he can't hold you in his grip? No, the scripture says, he who began this good work in you, let's say at the day of your salvation, will bring it to completion. Praise God that he'll bring it to completion and it's not even in our hand. Jesus said that I will never leave you nor, what, forsake you. He said in the Great Commission, behold, I am with you, how often? Always. He's interceding for you. So number one, you're secure in Christ. Number two, you're secure in the midst of the trials. And finally, you're just secure in God's love. You're, this is the... The strength of what, you're secure in God's love. You say, Scott, what do you mean? Look back to chapter 13 as we started that upper room discourse. In chapter 13, in verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, it's Thursday night, when they knew, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. Underline this, this is a humongous statement. He loved them to the end. He, he loved you all the way to the end. He loved you to Jesus Christ to the max is what the word means. He loved you with the greatest demonstration of his love that he could ever show you by going in obedience to the cross of Jesus Christ. And he loved you to the end. I'm just asking you, is he going to let go of you? Do, do you think, as one man said to me some years ago when he was in a Sunday school class and the Sunday school teacher put a, uh, kind of a picture up on the whiteboard and he, he showed how if you keep sinning and so many black dots fill the circle, then you could actually fall out of grace. So that the more you sin, the more a black spot went in the circle and the more another spot went in the circle and more another spot went in the circle to the point where the man, the young boy who was once saved would actually 
be in a position where he would lose it. But I'm telling you, you can't lose it because you were given as a gift to the Son by the Father from before the foundation of the world. And here, he loved you to the end. Look over at chapter 14. This is unbelievable. Chapter 14, and it will lead us into communion in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments, 1421, and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be, see that? Loved by my Father. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you're loved by the Father. How could the Father love you in time and then erase you from the book of life? He can't. You are secure in God's love. Look at verse 23. If any, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Here it is again. And my Father will, what? Love him. You're secure in God's love. You love his son whom he gave. And if you love his son whom he gave, then you're loved by the Father. Look at verse, look over to chapter 17 in that priestly prayer. We'll see it in a few weeks. I in them, 1723, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, I don't, I don't think you're, we can grasp that. But if you look at the phrase there, he loved them. It's hard to believe, but it's there in the scripture. Even as you loved me. You would never think that God the Father doesn't love God the Son. But what he's saying there in the prayer is, Father, you loved them just like you loved me. If you think that he loves the Son, then the text is saying, God the Father loves you even as he loved the Son. Look at verse 26. 1726, I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You're secure in God's love. Some of you are, you could be fearful towards the future. You could be fearful about the world that we live in. You could be fearful about the state of California. I get it. I understand that. But listen, you are secure in Christ. You're secure in the midst of trials. And thirdly, you're secure in God's love. Our precious Lord, the Father, God the Father, chose us from all eternity. And let me just say this. He's going to love you through all eternity. And he will never let go of you. Listen, let me say it again. Our salvation lies not in our strength, but in the mercy of God. I am convinced, Paul said in Romans 8, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, he says, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate you from what? The love of God. In other words, there's no power. There's no demonic power. There's no dream that you can have. 
There's no time where he sets his love on you and takes it off. There's nothing, no created thing, not power, nor principality, nor height, nor depth, he says there, will be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, God is so good to us, is he not? You're secure in Christ, you're secure in the midst of trials, and you are secure in God's love. 